welcome to Track. Track? Hey everyone, welcome back to Track Talk. I'm Bailey. And I'm Nathan. And you are joining us for episode two in our Through the Decades series. If you joined us last week, we were talking to Robert, an older gentleman who lived through the 60s and told us about his experience of the music of the decade. And now we're going to be taking our own experience of 60s music and looking at it through a feminist critical theory lens. How does that sound, Bailey? I mean, Nathan. (laughs) (laughs) I think that sounds just swell. Are you excited? I'm really excited. Uh, Before we get started, Bailey, do you want to tell people how to get a hold of us? I would love to. Please feel free to reach out to us at tracktalkshow at gmail.com. If you'd like to email us, you can reach us on Twitter at tracktalkshow or on soundcloud.com slash tracktalk. And please support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash tracktalk. And please review us on iTunes as well. If you're going to do any of those things, do that very last thing. We need some iTunes reviews to boost our morale. We don't need to grovel. (laughs) We won't beg. We're above that. We won't beg you for reviews. Unless it's a really good one, and then I'm more than happy to set my pride aside. And I know Bailey is too. Um, So Bailey, what did you think about our interview with Robert? What did you learn from that? I had a really good time. He was a very genuine person. It was really nice to chat with him, and I think that he had a really good perspective that we would not have gotten otherwise. Mm -hmm. To me, it seemed like he was a little bit hung up on a very select group of artists. How did you pick up on that? Um, And something that my dad pointed out to me afterward was that the 60s... While Robert is right that there were a lot of songs about men who were upset about their girlfriends leaving them, etc., it was also a lot about the Vietnam War, and mm-hmm. there was a lot of social commentary going on that maybe Robert just wasn't attuned to at the time, but was something that was very revolutionary in music at the time. That's a good point, and that's always going to be the problem when we get a snapshot of a decade or of a genre, uh, we're only going to be seeing one person's perspective of it. And Robert very readily admitted that, you know, he's a Southern boy who listened to a lot of country <laughs> music. Um, he didn't really get into the the swing of things in the 60s in the pop rock and roll sense. Um, so there was probably a lot of stuff that fell through the cracks that we hope to fill in in this episode. We, uh, we took a much broader view and built on some of the foundation that he laid for us. And I think we've got a lot of good examples to share with you. I think so, too. I'm excited. Um, One of the things that stood out to me about what Robert was saying was that it really doesn't matter to him what somebody looks like. Uh, He gave the example of, you know, you could be six foot ten or you could be two feet tall. As long as you're talented, he doesn't care. And I think that that dovetails pretty well into feminist literary criticism Mm. uh, in terms of looking at features that matter as opposed to arbitrary signifiers like gender and drawing lines of distinction and separation based on whether you're male or female as opposed to whether or not you're a good singer. I think that's a good point. Feminism is a lot about like finding out what makes us all human as opposed to what makes us all different. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's sometimes something that popular conception of feminism gets wrong in assuming that because it's, it's labeled feminism, it's not about equality. It's about female dominance or something. Burning bras and hating men. Exactly. It, it's, it's really not. Like, the core message of feminism and feminist literary theory is finding where the oppression lies and rooting that out and subverting it in order to achieve equality of the sexes. Yes. And on that note, Bailey, would you like to give us kind of a, a refresher on feminism? Because if my memory serves, we haven't really talked about it since episode two. 
with Justin Timberlake's Can't Stop the Feeling! Exclamation point. So, yeah, contrary to popular belief, feminism is not actually about hating men. Feminism, I know, feminism is about how literature and texts reflect or enforce or undermine gender oppression. And feminism is kind of trying to grasp at why the world works the way it does. Um, Like why it's dominated by men and other privileged groups. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about who has the power, who has the power inherently, not necessarily like on a case-by-case basis, and who doesn't. And usually we kind of see that under the structure of patriarchy, which means men have the power. Male-dominated. Male-dominated, yes. Now, are we talking about in terms of political power? Or like what, what kind of scale does this apply to? Um, we're talking about systematic structures, any kind of gender institutions. You ladies have it rough across the board. And also, you know, anyone who is not necessarily like a man, right? Yeah, I guess so. I hadn't really thought about that under the umbrella of feminism, at least with, with the first few waves of feminism. It's always seemed very dichotomous, right. male and female. And I, I would attribute other, other groups to like queer theory. But that's a that's a good point. It probably does extend to all the all the marginalized groups. Intersectionality is important. So yeah, so feminism is focused on recognizing small instances of oppression in our culture. So things like microaggressions and stereotypes and unintentional sexism, the wage gap, etc. So using those small instances to break down social barriers, those glass ceilings that we're always hearing about, and um, finding out exactly how we got this way and how we ended up where we are. And what we can do about it. And what we can do about it. So there were generally three waves of feminism. The first was in the 18 to 1900s with activists such as Mary Wollstonecraft, um, and that was kind of focused on pointing out gender oppression, and um, eventually it led to the suffrage movement when women got the right to vote in the United States in the 1920s. And the second wave was in the 1960s and 70s, which is consequentially what we're talking about today. Ooh, 60s. And um, that was more about, like, creating actual equity instead of just, like, getting those basic human rights that we didn't have before. Can you clarify your terms here real quick? Because I've always heard of equity just being used in terms of finance. So, like, equity in the workplace, I would think, would be, like, owning stock in the company. Absolutely. So we're talking about equality versus equity, where equality, everyone gets exactly the same thing, but really the playing ground isn't leveled. But equity is actually, like doing things to improve the condition of those who are oppressed. And so, like, bringing them up to the same level as other people instead of just, like, giving everyone the same amount of things or, like, giving everyone the same amount of access to things. So affirmative action would be an example of promoting equity as opposed to equality. Exactly. Okay. Okay, and then third wave feminism, which happened from the 90s to now, um, was focused on more intersectionality, which is the intersection of identities. So third wave feminism is kind of focused on how race plays into uh, gender and how sexuality plays into gender, etc. And there were many, 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 many authors who focused on this, but Alice Walker is a big one, etc. Yeah, I've heard a common critique of first and second wave feminism is that they are so focused on white, heterosexual, middle class 
gender equality or gender yes, equity. Exactly. As as opposed to really looking at how other factors play into a marginalized group. That's a great point. Well, thank you. <laughs> okay, so feminism says that gender is a cultural thing and it does not equal our sex. Sex is a biological thing that is not related to gender um, and kind of we're working on breaking down those boundaries and the patriarchal social structures that say that women have to do specific things or men have to be a certain level of masculinity, etc. So feminism where it's at right now is kind of focused on seeing instances of building and reflecting and tearing down gendered structures of, of oppression. And in a literary sense, that's kind of finding those instances within li- literature and within texts. So feminists say that we do gender daily. It's a thing that we do. It's not a thing that we are. It's something that we perform. And it affects more than we might think. And it is everywhere in text. Feminist critics say that you just you just have to look for it. And you can find instances of gender, gender oppression all over the place in literature. You just mm-hmm. got to look for it. So that's where I'm at. Where are you at? That's exactly how I want to approach this, is looking at how men and women as artists or as uh, narrative players in their own songs define and either reinforce or subvert gender norms. So whether the women in 60s music are the more traditional housewife, subservient model of femininity that we've seen in the you know early 1900s America, or if they break out of those gender roles— And the same with men, if they follow this hyper-masculine, tough guy persona, you know, spousal abuse, putting women in their place, it's a man's world, mad men kind of personality, or if they break that down. Sound good? Sure. Cool. So the one other thing that I wanted to talk about before we actually start applying theory to songs is the state of feminism and gender roles in the 1960s. So I mentioned mad men and... The 1960s is when Mad Men was supposed to be taking place with the three martini lunches and uh, the rampant sexism in the workplace. And I thought that a good way for us to kind of get a flavor of where women were in the 1960s would be to look at some ads from the time. That's fun. So let me pull them up for you. Okay. The first one is from 1959. And Bailey, do you want to tell the folks what you're seeing? So I see two men on a cliff edge... And they're just chatting with each other, but one of them is holding a rope. And at the end of the rope, dangling over the ledge, is a lady. And the caption says, men are better than women. Exclamation point. (laughs) Not a whole lot of subtlety there. So essentially, this ad is saying that women are great indoors, but outdoors, they're really useless. So you should just leave them at home and wear your fun Drummond sweater. By yourself, because men are just better than women. Well, I don't, not, I'm not, not by sure. yourself. I think the thrust of it is that you don't have to bring your lady to the top of the mountain to show off your nifty drum and sweater. You can wear it at home where she's useful. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mad Men quality ad right here. All right, let's take a look at the next Very one. unclear also. That's weird. It is a lot of copy for an ad like this. All right. Okay. This one is two humans. Um. <laughs> White people, am I right? <laughs> They are in what appears to, uh, what appears to be the kitchen table, and the lady has a chef's hat on, and they're standing in front of this mixer, and it says, the chef does everything but cook, 
That's what wives are for. Oh my god. And the chef is a Kenwood appliance that is like a big mixer. So this is very painful to look yeah, at. Yeah, but she looks is happy. Is this real? You know? These are all real. These okay. are all real. I actually, I, I pulled a bunch of these from uh, a Business Insider article that goes all the way back to uh, or the early 50s. And there are some just delightfully horrid. like Delightfully horrid? Absolutely excruciating ads from back then. Let's, oh, let's take a look at a couple more. Oh, good. Okay, so this is just a car. And it says, sooner or later, your oh, it's a little dinged on the front. Sooner or later, your wife will drive home one of the best reasons for owning a Volkswagen. I don't get it. Um, so what it's saying in very tiny font down here, uh, essentially a Volkswagen is very sturdy and it comes with a good warranty program. And so, uh, it says women are soft and gentle, but they hit things. Uh, women are bad drivers. And so you'd might as well get a Volkswagen because it'll be easy to replace when they inevitably get into an accident. Wow. That's so upsetting. Yeah, this was from 1964. Okay. All right. More, just more reasons to hate VW. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, okay. We'll, we'll speed through these ones. This is from 1967. Okay. Cigarettes are like women. The best ones are thin and rich. Pretty self-explanatory. Lovely. Uh, we've got one from 1969. Um, this is a cigarette one. It says blow in her face and she'll follow you anywhere. That's so untrue. Yep. It's a man blowing cigarette smoke in the face of a young, lovely young lady. And she looks like she's really enjoying it. She's having a good time. Okay. Um, this lady has some humans in her brain. Uh, when boredom and emotional fatigue bring on, quote-unquote, housewife headache. Take an Advil. Mm. And that's just a little bit of a taste of some of the rampant misogyny in uh, in popular culture. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that you would just see in magazines. And to Bailey's point at the beginning, this, I would say, is kind of a microaggression. It's not woman beating. Right. It's not public shaming. It's not, you know, a man standing on a pedestal surrounded by you know a harem of women it's more subtle and in some ways more sinister because it just creeps in it becomes normalized and the the fact that people aren't outraged by it really speaks volumes about the state of uh, gender relations during this time period during the 60s Um, a couple of other notes women were not allowed to get an ivy league education they couldn't go to harvard Um, they couldn't apply for credit cards there was no maternity leave at work until 1978 workplace sexual harassment was not illegal until 77 marital rape was legal until 1970 Uh, well it just wasn't a thing like it wasn't a rape yeah you you just had to have sex with your husband you couldn't practice law or serve on a jury as a woman until 71 uh, you could only get a divorce if your husband was unfaithful until 69. Uh, you could not enter the military academy until 1976, and you couldn't serve in active combat until 2013. And you couldn't be an astronaut until 1978. One of these things is not like the other. So all around from the surface, it seems like a pretty shitty time to be a gal. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, generally that's true until very recent times, right? <laughs> Are you having a good time being the gal right now? I'm all right. <laughs> yeah. Nobody's calling you a bird or a skirt. Oh no, or a floozy. If they did, they would they wouldn't be doing it for much longer. <laughs> <laughs> Respond with violence. Okay, so now that we have a ton of uh, of groundwork for 1960s and feminism, Bailey, my first question to you would be. How do you see gender portrayed in 60s music? We've been listening to a lot of it over the last couple of weeks. How are men and women portrayed? Uh, what is masculine versus feminine? Are there power dynamics that you see? So I think that a lot of what Robert was saying last week has a lot to do with how 
women were viewed in the 60s. Um, the way that, you know, every song was about how women are unfaithful and women will let you down and they're going to leave you and they'll cheat on you and you should never trust them, etc. Mm-hmm. Which is very pervasive in music of the 60s, for sure. Um, and I saw a lot of that when I was um, listening to all these songs. And I see that a lot of it is very much like, why? Why did this happen? Um, it's very s- sorrowful. It's lamenting. And it- it's very blamey, you know? Hmm. Blamey. So would you say that the portrayal of men in the 60s is as cuckolds? Yeah, absolutely. But blameless cuckolds. They're being, they're being victimized by wicked, what do people call them? Cheaty women? Like, vicious, cheaty women? There's oh, a succubus. From, no, there's a phrase from classical literature. No, it's totally succubus. Succubus. Begum succubus. That's from Michelle that you don't know. Um, anyway, uh, so I see this very prevalently, especially in the song Suspicion by Terry Stafford, mm-hmm. which I played to you in the car. You did. And uh, basically it's just this guy who's saying, like, you're doing bad things to me. Why are you doing that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Essentially. Yeah, it reminds me of the Howlin' Wolf song, Evil is Going On. But that was from the 50s, where he's like, I know something's going down. I know that you're being unfaithful to me. I just can't prove it. Yeah, what did you see in of the uh, portrayal of genders in 60s music? One thing that struck me as being particularly uh, ready for feminist criticism is uh, Pretty Woman by Roy Orbison. Oh, I was going to talk about that one, too. Pretty Woman So there was a feminist film critic in the 1970s named Laura Mulvey who wrote about the male gaze, G-A-Z-E. I was in a literary theory class once uh, when the teacher asked, do you know what the male gaze is? And this girl very confidently raised her hand and said, yeah, homosexual dudes. Um, it's not the case. Uh, gaze, it's, it, it refers to the pattern in film where women are very frequently framed in like a doorway or they're, they're framed within the shot as though they are being looked at by a man. Like, like everything is made from the male perspective. Yeah, it's made, it's made from the male perspective, but particularly uh, when we're looking at women, mm-hmm. uh, there are subtle POV kind of indicators that make us feel as though we are gazing upon them, which contributes to them being objectified and only there for the man's visual pleasure. And I see that in the song Pretty Woman by Roy Orbison, where he's just looking at her walking down the street. He wants to go follow her. He wonders if she can come back. He knows that he's falling in love with her just from looking at her. It is all about him playing out the male gaze. Absolutely. That's a good point. Um, so I think that that kind of shows us how, how men are acting. Um, there's another song by Leslie Gore called Boys Will Be Boys, hmm. in which she talks about how you know she sometimes starts to get sad when she notices her boyfriend looking at other gals or being unfaithful to her or treating her poorly when he roughs her up. But then she just has to remind herself and all of her fans listening to her that, you know, boys will be boys. You can't really blame them. It's just in their nature. And one we last st- we song. We still hear that a lot today, right? Yeah, we do. One last song is Lightning Strikes by Lou Christie, which I think is the most egregious song that we'll probably talk about today. Oh, I don't think I know it. Well, let's play a little bit. Nature's taken over my high one track mind. Bending it or not, you're in my heart all the time. All the girls are saying that you'll end up a fool. For the time being, baby, 
So essentially the whole song is him telling his woman that he's going to go off on the road and, you know, it's, it's hard to settle down. Uh, she can't ask him to stick around. He's going to go fool around with anybody who wants to make time with him. I do like that phrase, make time. But he's telling her that she needs to stay at home and be faithful to him. What? Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, quite the double standard that men just can't help themselves. They're these lascivious horn dogs who have to go fooling around, making time all over the place. Uh, but women should be demure and virginal and wait patiently at home for their man. Yeah, and submissive, right? And submissive, yeah, to, to submit to their, their man's timeline. Hmm, sounds like a... Good guy, Lou. Swell guy, yeah. Way to go, Lou. Do you have any others? Um, not necessarily about like genders themselves, but I do have um, quite a few that I was thinking about when we're talking about defining gender roles within songs. And I think that going along with the Terry Stafford song and with the ones that you were mentioning, um, I heard it through the grapevine by Marvin Gaye, which is one of my favorite songs of all mm-hmm. time. Like I love it so much. It's such a good song. Huh, I wouldn't have thought of that one as gender roles at all. You'll have to remind me of the lyrics. I think I think that it's very indicative of like the paranoia that comes with being with a woman, I guess. Like I heard it through the grapevine, so it must be true because your word doesn't mean anything. So you've you're definitely with some other guy. Hmm. You knew before between the two of us guys, you know I loved you more. It's such a good song. But also I think that it has a lot to do with generals. And also, um, kind of subverting that, the song You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman by Aretha Franklin. Uh, so that's kind of the flip side of the gender roles. And she kind of talks about how, like, she's nothing without her man. And he kind of defines her. Like, he's the one who makes her feel like a woman. Like, she is not a woman without him. So I'm only a woman because of my juxtaposition and proximity to a man. Hmm. Interesting. I'm sure that this isn't the last time that we're going to talk about Aretha Franklin in this episode. I hope not. Um, real quick, just because it brought it to mind when you were talking about infidelity and this fear of, of women cheating, on the other side of that, that also presents a uh, troublesome gender role. There's a song by The Crystals, which is a group of four women called He Hit Me and It Felt Like a Kiss, in ah. which she talks about how, well, I guess they all talk about how she was unfaithful and cheated on her man and he hit her. And she's she's happy that he hit her because it proves how much he cares about her. That oh, he was that upset God. that she cheated on him. You are very good at finding the most problematic songs, <laughs> apparently. Yeah, it's quite a talent. Okay, let's move on from that because I have, I have too many things that I want to say about that. Um, okay, so Bailey, when we're talking about these gender roles, is there a distinction between how guys are portrayed as acting or how women are portrayed as acting and their intrinsic masculinity or femininity? I think that there are quite a few songs that I came across that really define masculinity and femininity, especially for the time. And for me, those were the songs where, again, women were dangerous. They were the succubus. Um, We see that in the song Poison Ivy by the Coasters, Mm -hmm. which was mentioned by Robert last week. Thanks, Robert. And also... At Last by Etta James. It's it's about, like, I've been waiting for you. She says, here we are in heaven, for you are mine at last. Um, it's kind of a servant-worshipper relationship, so women are very submissive, and that's kind of a feminine quality is, is the submissiveness, right? I'll say. In terms of masculinity, though, the men, the, the masculineness is, it's tough. It's hardworking. There was a song that I found that was kind of like 16 Tongues, 
16 tons from the 50s. It was called Big Bad John by Jimmy Dean about a coal miner who just works hard, gets his work done. Um, and we also talk about, um, I mean, we can't, we can't go through a, a podcast on the 60s without talking about the Beatles, right? I really you know? wish we could, though. I, <laughs> I guess Bailey didn't know this about me, but I really don't care for the Beatles. This is like, so stupid. Why? At all. No. I would okay. always choose to listen to something else. So I, I didn't <sighs> listen to a single Beatles song in preparation for this. And I stand by that. I'm just going to sing the Beatles um, every once in a while in this music. But anyway, right now I'm thinking about A Hard Day's Night. They go, it's been a hard day's night. I think there's too much penis imagery in this song. Um, log? And hard. Oh, okay. That was a possibility. It's a little Freudian for me. Which is something that we're really not going to be talking about too much in this version of feminism, but a lot of feminist critics use Freudian criticism way too much. Lots of penis and vagina imagery and missing the phallus or having the phallus and... Phallus, phallus. (laughs) Who's got the phallus? (laughs) Yep. So that was a Beatles song that um, is good and that we should listen to more. And What does this have to do with masculinity? Anyway, so it, it's been a hard day's night. They've been working so hard, even though like they're just like British band boys. Somehow they're just exhausted all day. So, so how do you determine that that's them acting masculine as opposed to just saying, like, we're working hard and we're people? Do you think that that's intrinsically coded masculine? Yeah, I, I think that... The way that masculinity and femininity were defined and set up at this time really has an effect on the way that we see those two traits today. Okay. That's all I have to say about that. Okay. All right. So now that we've talked about where men and women fall on this spectrum and what's masculine and what's feminine and how gender roles are played out, I wonder if you can come up with any examples from 60s music of gender swapping or uh, role blending or androgyny where... You know, women take on traditionally masculine roles, or men take on traditionally feminine roles, or or even just examples of people undermining those expectations. That's a really great question, and um, I do. I you know, I had a really hard time finding examples of this, and I found one that's not it's not a perfect example, but I do think that it is indicative of some hope for role reversal, if that makes sense. So in the song Big Girls Don't Cry by Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons, which is actually number 16 of the Billboard 100 of the decade. So it was a big deal at the time. So it's it's by a man and his band of all men. But it's it's about a man who breaks up with this woman and he expects her to be really sad and he says I hope that she I hoped that she would call my bluff. But it ended up showing that women can be strong and independent, and the woman in the song just didn't need him, and she left, and he was very sad afterward. And it got surprisingly good reception. It was number 16. And, and it was very much like a, a, an empowering song to me when I was listening to it, personally. And so I'm not, I'm not sure exactly what the implications are of that, if, if it helped at all with gender relations at the time, but I do think that it is indicative of a trend toward empowering women. Interesting. And it set Fergie up for success later on in life. Oh, because of the song title? Because of the song title. (laughs) 
We were already primed for it. I think that's a good example. Thanks. Did you, were you able to find any role reversals? Well, one that I kind of wanted to talk about was Don't Make Me Over by Dionne Warwick. And she's kind of talking about how she's a strong woman and she likes who she is. And so she's begging her lover not to change her, not to make her change. Hmm. But it's kind of undermined by the fact that she says, I do anything for you. I adore you. You've got me at your command. It boils down to she doesn't want to change for him. But she will. She totally would. Yeah. Gotcha. He's, he's absolutely in control of her personality. So instead of talking about that song, which I already have, um, I'd like to point to a song called Bounce Your Boobies <laughs> by a female comedian named Rusty Warren. Uh, it's from 1961. It sounds, sounds like, like joy. It sounds like something that would be recorded today. And it's all about, you know, not having to listen to what your man thinks <laughs> and uh, doing whatever makes you feel good and, and, being happy with your own body and not being subservient. And there's a lovely little bit in there where she makes fun of penises. <laughs> so I think that it reverses the submissive love struck sort of uh, feminine expectations. Cool. And it's just a fun song. Uh, check it out. So I guess kind of drawing off of that song, the, the making fun of men and undermining expectations. Do you see any songs that directly address the patriarchy? The, the patriarchy, again, being the male-dominated culture um, and the, the system of female oppression that's pervasive throughout society. Uh, do you see any songs that try to take up arms against that, or at the very least point it out and, and make other people aware that that's what's happening? Yeah, so I found a couple of really great female empowerment songs and songs that are more about, like... Men being dicks? Kind and of. not tolerating it, not standing up for it, not, not taking it sitting down. Yeah, standing up for yourself kind of songs. Okay. Um, so one of those was Don't Come Home A-Drinkin' by Loretta Lynn, which is just a, a really delightful, fun song to listen to. And it's it's very quick and snappy. And um, I listened to it probably five or six times. I watched a video of her performing that, actually, and she is so smiley. She has enormous, very high cheekbones. She just looks <laughs> so pleased all the time. She's very cute. Yeah. So basically the song is saying, I don't need you. You don't treat me well enough. So please just leave. Like, I don't even bother coming home. If you're going to be out, like getting super drunk and being an asshole, mm -hmm. just, just don't bother. I don't need you in I my like life. Yeah, yeah. That's definitely sticking it to the patriarchy. Telling him yeah. that he can't come home and get fresh with her. Yeah. Let's play a little bit. A liquor and love. They just don't. Yeah, I like that. That's definitely her stepping outside of the traditional gender role of the submissive housewife. That's her telling her man what's what and taking power in the relationship. Yeah. It's my home, too. Yeah. Let me, let me enjoy it and not have to take care of you all night, you little shit face, and, like, wait for you all night. I'm not that person. Shit face. <laughs> Snaps. The song that really stood out for me, which I would say is arguably the feminist anthem of the 60s, is You Don't Own Me by Leslie Gore. You may remember her as the lady who graced us with Boys Will Be Boys early on. Hmm. So it seems like she changed her tune a little bit. Um, oh, good one. And in 1963, she put out You Don't Own Me, which... You Don't Own Me. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll play a little bit that's not Bailey singing it. Oh. You don't own me I'm not just one of your many toys You don't own me 
And I think that this one is just super straightforward. You know, it's saying, I'm not your trophy wife. Uh, you can't tell me what to do. I'm going to go out with other boys if I want to. Ooh. I'm my own person. You don't own me. Like, we're having fun together, but this isn't a power dynamic that I'm comfortable supporting. So I really like that one. Okay, so I think that those are both really, really good examples of female empowerment songs and songs that reassert women's ability to break out of these oppressive patriarchal power structures, but we would be absolutely remiss if we didn't talk about the one obvious example. Yeah. Do you know what I'm talking about, Bailey? I think so. Sing it for me. Spell it for me. R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Yeah, Bailey. So I, I, I want to find out what it means to you. Do you get my joke? Yes. Um, I was just going to brush over it, but yes, good job. Good joke. Thank you. So Aretha Franklin, in respect, is basically just talking about boundaries, right? Saying that respect is not something that you have to earn. It's just something that I get and you don't get to just walk all over me. Yeah. I Like, I am a human and so I deserve as much respect as you get. Mm-hmm. It's very assertive, but it's not bitchy. Like, it's no, not, no. It's not her being snide or shrill or any of those other, you know... It, crass adjectives that we associate with women who claim power for themselves. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's so very just straightforward and blunt and saying, yeah, I'm, I'm a person too. I deserve respect as much as anybody else. I'm a human, yo. Yo. What I didn't know until I researched this song was that it was originally recorded by Otis Redding. I did not know that. In 1965, and Aretha Franklin did it in 67. So she stole from a man. Um, I thought that that was... <laughs> I I thought that it was an interesting parallel to uh, what we were talking about a couple of weeks ago with Elvis stealing Hound Mm -hmm. Dog from a woman. It's the opposite way around and co-opting it from uh, something that a man had originally been singing. And she makes it her own. And I think that it's really interesting that now we associate that song with her as a woman, as opposed to with a man who is very famous in his own right, you would think would get all the credit for something like this. But uh, she did it so well, and she added the sakatumi, 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 sakatumi. She is truly a force to be reckoned with in the music world and in life, probably. She is. And if uh, if You Don't Own Me isn't the feminist anthem of the 60s, then this certainly is. Absolutely. Ah, what a great song. What an iconic song. What a gal. So I think that we can kind of back away a little bit from 60s songs right now and then just talk about feminist theory in general with the few minutes that we have left. How do you feel, Bailey, about the ability for songs like these to affect change in the world? Do you think that this is the best avenue for feminists to be trying to spread their message? Oh, absolutely. I think that music is how we relate to each other. I mean, music is something, it's it's one of the very few things that is universal. I mean, maybe not universal because we're so wrapped up in our United States paradigm of music, but I think that a lot of times it is it is one of the very few things that we can appreciate across political divides, across cultural divides, and it, it's just something that we can all appreciate. And if we all get something different out of that, I think that's a, a great thing. Mm-hmm. And if we can all gather around a concept or a theme in music that's also awesome. I mean, a lot in the 60s, a lot of that was happening with, with war music. War music. Um, more like anti-war music, or peace kinds of messages. And I think that that absolutely affected the way that people thought about social relations or political relations, and it shaped how we see the world today. 
Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I agree. I think that songs are a very effective avenue to spread this kind of message because of the nature of the the public's relation with singers and songwriters. Uh, I think that music artists tend to be more iconic than pretty much any other pop culture icon. Uh, you know, when when you read a book, you don't really, at least for me, think about the author or engage with the author as deeply as you do a music artist. And the same goes with actors. You kind of, you either think about their personal life in the tabloids or you think about the role that they're playing, but you don't really think about the intersection between them. And they don't really mm-hmm. stand for the message that they're promoting the same way that Aretha Franklin stands for respect. It's not just a song that she's conveying, it's her in song form. And she gets to stand for that whole message in and of herself. I, I think that it's helpful because it not only gives us the words to express these ideas and, and the music to drive it home and to make it catchy and to make us want to keep coming back to it, but it also gives us a character. And sometimes it's a caricature and sometimes it's intentionally distorted by the artist. But I think that it's really helpful to have somebody like that to look to as an icon. Absolutely. And and we use songs as rallying cries all the time for causes or for activism. I agree. One other question that I had uh, that came up, I was listening to NPR earlier this week, and they were talking about having just finished putting together a list of the top 150 oh, yeah. albums by women. They were highlighting the song The Rain by Missy Elliott, which I had totally forgotten about and listened to again, and it's fantastic. And what I wonder is, is it at all dangerous or problematic or detrimental to the message to refer to top 150 albums by women uh, as opposed to just top 150 albums? Uh, this, this to me comes back to the, is Venus Williams the best tennis player or is she the best women's tennis player? Having to put that caveat or that qualifier on it seems to detract from their overall value. And I wonder what you think about that, Bailey. That's such a good question. Ah, I don't know. I mean, it becomes problematic when when you say something like, wow, you're such a great singer for a lady. Sure, but I don't think I've ever heard anybody say that. But that, to me, is the implicit message when you say you're a great lady singer. No, I think, I think that's a great point. I don't know. I mean, I think that you can find a lot of empowerment in, like, the term female singers or, like, the term woman president. Like, you, you can really identify with that because, you know, the word, like, feminine words have always kind of been seen as deviant or mm-hmm. or bad in some way. And so kind of taking back those words and saying, like, yeah, these women are awesome. Let's let's talk about how awesome these women are. I mean, I guess I guess I my answer to your question is I don't know. I don't know mm-hmm. if it's bad to say like the top 150 albums by women, but I, I I do think that it it is good to give them recognition where maybe recognition isn't always there. And to rejoice in it and to, you know, to do a look at how far we've come mm-hmm. um to form a community around it. And then sometimes it's just, in my opinion, for expediency. You know, it, it's it's an adjective. It's a relevant adjective. When I was looking for music from the 60s, I was looking up 60s music. I didn't just look up music and hope to find some <laughs> 60s near the top of it. Yeah. Um, but I also wasn't downplaying or uh, degrading that music in any way by specifically looking for 60s music any more than I would if I were looking for female artists. Maybe I'm just looking for female artists 
because that's what I'm in the mood to hear. Yeah. And also, I think it's important to note that that list of the NPR list was made by women completely. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's an important distinction to make because it's not just a bunch of guys sitting around in a room and being like, all right. I, I don't know. I'm trying to think of. You're trying to tap into your prejudicial idea of what masculine behavior is? Yeah, just like scratching their armpits and. Belching. Yeah. And the jerking whole time. off. <laughs> no, that's not what I think that men do. But um, it's not, it's not just a bunch of men deciding who the best women are. Sure. Right? Yeah, it's a good point. So it is made about women, for women, by women. And that's important. But it might still be a problem, and we don't know. Um, weigh in, please. <laughs> Yeah, what do you think? Yeah, reach out to us. Let us know what you think. But only if you're a lady, because guys just... Stop. Stop That's belching not, no, and don't. being gross. And <laughs> oh my god. Please, men, we men, we love you. Come on the show. <laughs> so, Bailey, after listening to all this music and seeing the progression from one end of the spectrum of very submissive and role-accepting women all the way over to rebellious, strong, nasty women, do you see hope for the future or, or the contemporary scene of music? Do you see music today sounding different and, and breaking with more of those roles? Or do you see a resurgence of uh, female oppression? Great question. So one thing that we talk about when we talk about feminist theory is the Bechtel test. Are you familiar with the Bechtel test? I am. And this is the same Alison Bechtel that we talked about with the Fun Home musical and the Fun Home comics. Yes. She's great. Fun Home. So... The Bechtel test is, is very simple, but it almost always fails. It's, it us- it's usually applied to movies. I'm not sure if I can really do it to music as much as, as you could. But in movies, the Bechtel test is passed if there are two women talking to each other, just two women, and if they talk about something other than a man. And you would not believe it, but very, very, very few times does it pass the Bechtel test. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm kind of trying to apply that to music, And I see women singing about men less and less today. And I see a lot of women talking about other things like body positivity and female empowerment and girl power and other things. Like more about the self, about their lives, about their friends and family. Mm -hmm. And About drinking on a weekday. Yeah, so so the fact that, that the focus is less on women's relationships to men and more on just like women as humans, I think that that is a good sign. I think that's a sign of hope. And also, I see the word feminism being less of a bad word today. We don't shy away from it nearly as much as we used to. Mm -hmm. It's not just bra burning and hating men. It's like creating equity in the world. Those are some really good examples. Um, I wonder, do you think that songs sung by women with genderless nouns and pronouns, like just saying you and baby and my lover, do you think that that passes the Bechtel test? Um, Because we can't, according to queer theory, just assume that they're talking about men. They very well could be singing about women. Alison Bechtel is a lesbian, if that... If that helps. If that helps. (laughs) Okay. Um, I I mean, I I guess in general, it's just less about relationships and relationships... I, I don't know. I'm not certain, but I've I've been noticing that, especially ever since we did Queer Theory with Adele, wh- that even the love songs never really refer to my man. Uh, mm, that's true. They do sometimes, but more infrequently than than in previous generations. Of so songs. maybe it's it's more of an intersectional thing going yeah. on, or leaving it open to a, a broader class of listeners. 
where, you know, it's not just for heterosexual people anymore. Inclusivity. Inclusivity. As for me, I've definitely noticed a lot more girl power, uh, female positivity songs. Um, one that I think is a good segue from our conversation here is a cover uh, slash remix of You Don't Own Me. Oh, uh, cool. It's by Grace, and it's featuring g Easy of all people. Who's mm. usually a fairly misogynistic rapper, but the whole song is about uh, you know him having respect for for her having respect for herself. He respects her respecting herself, um, <laughs> and it's really catchy. Uh, it's good. It's got a nice hip hop drum set to match the the old Leslie Gore style. Uh, the Grace sings it pretty much just like her, and then other songs like you know uh, "Run the World" by Beyonce yeah. and uh, "Ain't Your Mama" by J Lo. She's still J Lo. Yeah. Jennifer Lowe, and Girl on Fire by Alicia Keys. This girl is on fire. And, uh, you know, songs like that. I, I've been noticing a lot more of those feminist anthems uh, coming out more and more frequently. And I think it's really cool. I think it's very refreshing. Yeah, yeah. same. Uh, yeah. Especially to combat, I'm sure we could go on and on about misogyny in contemporary music. Right. Uh, I don't think that that's gotten any better. In fact, it might be even more blatant and in your face than 60s music. 60s music tended to just kind of take it for granted and brush by it. And, you know, it was just a part of the life, but it wasn't as obscene and and direct. Um, you, didn't, you didn't necessarily know what you were doing as much as you might now? They said bitch a lot less often. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, feels, it feels more intentional. And aggressive. But I think that we're making steps in the right direction. And just like you said, you know, feminist isn't as much of an F word as it used to be. Um, I, I think we're all coming to grips with the fact that it's about equality and compassion and understanding and not privileging one group over another instead of being about, you know, man-hating. Totally. Yeah. Anything else you wanted to add? I can't think of anything. I think this was a really good conversation. And I would also really like to hear other people's perspectives. Um, so if you've got one, if you have questions, or if you would like to call us out on anything that we said badly, let us know. Feel free to tweet or email, however you get your messages across. You could send us a message on Facebook. Carrier Pigeon. You could come find wherever we're doing this recording and burst into the studio. Which we're, is really just a library. <laughs> yeah, we're in a study room at a library right now. <laughs> and I think that's it. All right. Thank you for listening. Uh, we're going to try to do an interview for next week uh, with somebody from the 70s. We'll do our best. Uh, we will do our best if we can scrounge somebody up. If you have any hot tips on where we can find somebody who is alive and listening to music during that time, send them our way. We'd love to talk to them. Otherwise, we'll just be wandering the streets despondently and crying until we find someone old or, enough. Or one of us might pretend to be sick that week and then do an accent um, and the other person can interview them. Okay. Yeah. I'll work on it. That's possible. All right. Well, we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. You don't know me, I'm not just one of your little toys, you don't know me, I'm going to hang around with other boys, <laughs> the lyrics. I don't know the words at all. <laughs>